Chaos, of course, ensues. The chaos ensues. That's a lot of fun. So a big part of why we do that, for those of you who are uh, watching and wondering, like, why do we do what we do? We have a kid sing during the Advent season. It includes some Christmas songs. That seems like a nice time to have them up here. And today, you'll notice that there's actually an introduction to the Vacation Bible School for this coming summer, which is the second week in June. And we have that available for registration. You can actually do it online. It's, it's gotten much easier. I think we had like 958 kids last year. No, that's an exaggeration. But it felt like at least maybe three, 4,000. It's hard to tell how many are rolling around in here. We get all the chairs out of this room. And it's it's a big part of our outreach. I actually talked with someone the other day who, she lives in Parker, and she brings her kids up here to the VBS program, because that just it's, they've got friends, everything else. You just never know how that outreach works. So it's a great thing. You'll also see in your bulletin, there's a, the start of the data to get signed up. And as you know, there's always some things out there that you can bring, like a bucket of marshmallows, and I don't know, there's all kinds of stuff that you can do to be a contributing part. And also, we can always use some help. Some people, you know, the main leadership is all in place, but we can always use some people that would say, oh, I can come on Tuesday and Thursday of that week and help out. That'd be awesome. If you can come one day or five, that would be a great, big, uh, wonderful thing. Also, don't forget our Haiti team is... They just left on Friday. They're going to... They, I'm actually a little envious today because they get to go to church at one of the church plants that's out away from the campus in Piat, that's a good sign, by the way, that they're moving around and feeling a lot of freedom there. And, and the people are very, very encouraged. Cindy said very clearly, the fact that we came this year meant more than often it does because of the unrest, because of the uncertainty that some people feel, because they've had some teams that have canceled. No judgment towards them, but that's just a reality. And uh, so just continue to pray for our team. And also, I just wanted you to notice there's this one insert here, kind of a purple insert that's stuck in for the Pishak, the uh, Seder celebration we're going to have in a couple of weeks on Friday. That'll be in this room. We get all these chairs. We move them around, put tables in here. Remember, the dinner is a brisket dinner from Arapaho Cafe. Yeah, that, ooh, that's exactly what happened in the first service, too, that, oh, ooh, yeah. So, I mean, it's a lovely meal. And then we go through, uh, Judy Deal's been working with me, and we're, we're coming up with a way to connect the story of Christ back into the celebration of the Passover that was a part of the Jewish history. And if you recall, on the famous last night, the picture of the Last Supper, as one guy referred to it on TV the other day, Jesus and the boys. I don't think that's what that painting, but, you know, the famous. But that event that, of course, has so much great information and us understanding and the washing of the feet and all of that, uh, Judas going out, that it happens in the context of a celebration of a Seder dinner. 
And so we're going to celebrate that together. There's opportunity for you to sign up out on the uh, Welcome Center. Also online, you have that opportunity to go in, and it's a nominal charge, $5 a person for adults. It's super great. So go check that out. Make that available. It's just a couple of Fridays from now on the 12th. Don't want you to miss that. And then, of course, greetings from our pastor, Jim. You remember Jim? Remember that guy? Yeah, okay, good. That's important. Um, he's out, and Don and I were talking, Dr. Payne and I, who's going to come and speak in just a minute. I'll give a little more of a, of a uh, formal introduction here in a moment. But he and I go back a long time. We're thinking it's pushing 37, 38 years, something like that, because of Bible college connections. And we also know Jim. Don's known Jim for a long, much longer than I have. But we think we're too long. As that, yeah, that's perfect. Um, but we think we're onto something because Jim seems to never be here for kids sing. And so maybe he loves kids, but just not yours. I don't know what that's all about. We were trying to figure that out. But he's actually with his, his grandkids and his daughter Molly in Boston right now. I think there's a baptism or a, or a christening or a dedication, whatever the form is in the church. So that's great. You can continue to pray for him. I also want to acknowledge Dr. Payne's wife, Sharon, who probably you don't get acknowledged very often when he's wrong. Is that true? But you have your own because you have a, a great ministry working uh, front range down in, in uh, the Denver area, and you guys have some performances coming up and so forth. But there, here's an interesting connection. Not only did Don and I sing together in an all-men's choir back in the day, but Sharon was my speech teacher for freshman speech. How many of you remember freshman speech class? Yeah, in college. Here's what's really interesting, though, and I have said this often since then. You never know what you do in the way of investing in people. But she said to me in that class, I don't expect you to remember it, but I remember that you did this for me because I'm not afraid up here. Have you ever gathered that? Have you ever kind of picked that up? Like I'm, I really am not bothered to be in front of a group of people. And she said to me, you know, God might have given that to you as a gift because most people are, they would rather be shot in the back than have to stand in front of people and talk. How many of you hate public speaking? Yeah, so that is a very common thing. But she said to me, you know, you're very comfortable up there, and that might be something that God gave to you. And it actually started a track for me. I was in Bible college already kind of pursuing what ministry would look like, but that was a very important, critical juncture, a milestone in my life. So thank you. Thanks for doing that. And thanks for bringing your husband up here. Don, come on up here. Um, these guys have been around and have blessed us before other times. And that's what we pointed out was that it was another kids sing, right? The last, I think yeah. the last time. Every, time. every time the kids sing, Jim leaves town and yeah. asks me to and speak. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I don't know what that is. You guys can sort that all out. But also Dr. Payne is uh, one of the critical pieces of Denver Seminary where I just recently finished my process. We had several classes together, and I really appreciated his ministry. And so that you know this publicly, Stephen Sealing is going to start his process very soon. He's been accepted at Denver Seminary, so uh, Don will continue to invest in the lives of our people here. You know what? We don't usually do this, but give him a hand. I'm glad that he's here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. It's always a treat for us to, to be back up here. It really is. Um, 
I guess with what he with what he said, I have to make a disclaimer. Sharon and I should both make a disclaimer about anything he does wrong or any of his goofy theology. Don't lay that at our doorstep. I'm going to use this thing. I've never used one of these uh, these cool tables here, but I guess this is the cool thing to use these days, and Jim uses this. And I'm going to try it just because I don't want him saying to anybody that he's cooler than me. So we've got to level the turf there. I know he's been uh, taking you through uh, a series of messages on the subject of holiness. And he had asked me to continue that conversation with you. <coughs> Excuse me, because this is a... It's a subject that I've been working on for some years now. And when you think about holiness, the word holy, um, that's, that can be a very daunting and intimidating concept. You can run a little social experiment, if you care to, with any group of Christians and tell them, we're going to talk about holiness and just watch their facial expressions. Because when you throw that word holy out and holiness, you know, chances are pretty good that either people's eyes are going to roll or their faces are going to drop and their spirits are going to drop. And they're going, oh boy, here we go again. Now I'm going to have to be confronted with everything I'm not that I ought to be. Holiness. Um, it's a daunting and, and foreboding and intimidating concept. It, it really comes, our, our English word holy comes from... Um, a Latin word, sanctus, which means to consecrate or to dedicate. Um, and we get a lot of connotations from that. But when you think about a holy person, what do you think about? Or who, who do you think about? You may, you may envision Mother Teresa. Or think about these people we call saints. St. Paul and St. Peter and St. Augustine, and St. Jerome, and all of these noble figures who seem larger than life. Holy people. Some of you will know the name Eric Little, whose name was kind of made famous around the world by the movie Chariots of Fire back in the 80s. You probably, some of you probably know a good bit of his story. Eric Little was a Scot who in the early 1920s was a sprinter. He was a world-class sprinter, um, student at the University of Edinburgh. And, of course, this is what the movie was made about. He, uh, he ran in the 1924 Olympics, gold, got a gold medal in the 400 meters. Uh, but he got famous, uh, in a way, because his actual... Uh, uh, his, actually, his best sport was the 100 meters, but the 24 Olympics had the 100 meters scheduled on Sunday, and as uh, a man of deep religious convictions, he would not run on Sunday, and so he uh, forewent the opportunity to win a gold medal in the 100 meters, ran in the 400, got a gold, movie was made about him. Uh, what many people do not know about the balance of Eric Little's life is that he... Um, uh, after he graduated from the University of Edinburgh and after the Olympics were done, uh, he moved to China to be uh, a missionary. He had actually been born in China. His folks were missionaries. And he returned to China and became a teacher at an English-speaking school there. Uh, in the 1940s, when the Second World War broke out, uh, Little was teaching in China. He's in his mid-40s by this time. And when, the, uh, when Japan invaded China... 
Uh, they rounded up all of the civilian Westerners, Americans, Brits, Australians, South Africans, and just all of the civilian Westerners, rounded them up and put them into intern camps in China. Now, it was not like a concentration camp. It was not a, um, they, were, they were not uh, har- harassed or persecuted, but it was a very stark, very Spartan existence. And uh, Eric Little was one of the ones rounded up into uh, uh, an intern camp in uh, an area called Shantung. Now, there was another uh, young uh, American there, a 24-year-old American named Langdon Gilkey, who was an English teacher at a, at an Ameri- a different American school. And Langdon Gilkey uh, kept meticulous journals of his time, his two and a half years, in the Shantung compound. And uh, here was a, a group of about 1,500 people who were just thrown into a camp together, given some supplies, and had to create a society. And when Gilkey writes his, uh, his narrative of this two and a half years, he talks about people, people of all walks of life. Some were missionaries, some were business people. They're just people of all sorts who were Western civilians who had to create a society together. And Gilkey uh, chronicles how this brought out sometimes the best and sometimes quite often the very worst in otherwise really good people. Well, toward the end of the book, Gilkey, just in one very brief paragraph, mentions of all the people he described, he mentions one individual, Eric Little. And he says of Eric Little, if ever I have met a true saint, he was one. It's high praise. Um, If ever I have met a true saint, he was one. Well, that kind of reinforces the concept, doesn't it, of a saint, a holy person, because those words actually come from the same Greek word. Uh, We translate it in various ways, sometimes sanctified, holy, or saint. I looked up on a Roman Catholic website the the word saint, and uh, it was defined as it's what we're all hoping to become. Kind of reinforces it, doesn't it? It holds this high bar for being a saint or being a holy person. Um, If if we were to define holiness, sainthood, very practically, how would we define that? Well, sometimes it's just being really, really, really good. (laughs) Or being incredibly pious, incredibly religious, Right? Is, is, that, is that fair in terms of how being holy is commonly understood, maybe how we tend to understand it? Well, the shocking story of holiness is that if you have committed yourself in faith to Jesus Christ, you are as holy as any of these people we hold up as saints. If you have committed yourself in faith to Jesus Christ, you are every bit as holy as any of these people we hold up as saints. Now, how can I say a thing like that? Because you may be thinking in your mind, wait a second, you don't know me. And you don't know the stuff that goes through my head. And you don't know the the things I have said and the things I have done, or the things I have wanted to say and done, the stuff that's in my heart. You don't know me. How can you say that? Or, you may be thinking to yourself, I've got no hope 
of ever being like that. And frankly, maybe I have very little interest in being that type of person. But if you have committed yourself in faith to Jesus Christ, you are every bit as holy, every bit as much a saint as any of these people we hold up. And I can say that because over time, over a very long period of time, the biblicture of holiness has become rather misshapen, misproportioned. If you've been to an amusement park, um, have, you, have you ever stood in front of one of those kind of curvy mirrors that distort the picture? And, and you look at yourself in one of those mirrors and you see yourself and you recognize it's you, but it's not, right? Because everything is out of proportion. It's just recognizable enough that you know it's you, but you realize that's not really the story of who you are. And the biblical portrayal of holiness, what what Scripture sometimes translates as sanctified or sanctification, has become misshapen, misproportioned in just that kind of way. Um, Because the dominant motif, the dominant emphasis on holiness all throughout Scripture is that holiness is already done. It's already accomplished. It has been done for us through Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we're all as mature as we need to be. That does not mean that we're kind of off the hook for um, living any way we want. No, it doesn't mean that. It does not mean that we've got it together because we don't. It means that something has happened that now defines our lives, that changes everything. It's been done. Now, that's not the only way holiness is talked about, but that is by far the dominant way. That's the defining way. That's the controlling way that holiness is talked about. Now, I want to show you an example of that in Scripture. Very brief example. It's just one statement in one verse. So if you turn in your iPhones to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Or if you happen to have a paper copy of the Scripture, you could always use that. But turn in, whatever you have, look up the book of 1 Corinthians, the very first chapter, the, very, uh, the second verse, verse 2. Now, this is a very common opening line that Paul, the apostle, St. Paul, uses in lots of his letters. And we tre- tend to treat this as kind of a throwaway line. But here's what Paul says in verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. He makes a statement of fact. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now in some versions, some translations of the scripture, you will see that translated as to the holy ones in Corinth. To the saints in Corinth. It's all the same word. Now, if you know anything about biblical history, if you know anything about the city of Corinth and this church in the city of Corinth in the first century, that's a, that sounds like a really odd thing for the Apostle Paul to say. Because that church in that city in that time period, if I could just put it this candidly, was one of the most messed up groups of people around. Now, they were all followers of Jesus. They're Christians. But they were as goofed up, they were as conflicted, as divided, as immature, as 
heady as just about any group of people you could ever identify. And Paul calls them saints, holy ones, sanctified people. Now, it, we, we can't just dismiss this like, like the opening line of a letter or an email where we say to a friend, hey, how you doing? How's the family? Hope you're well. Blah, 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 blah. Now on to what I really want to talk about. No, Paul is making a deep theological statement when he makes that. And he even returns to that later on in the letter in chapter 6 while he's in, in the middle of a deep theological argument. In chapter 6, verse 11, he says, you have been sanctified. You have been made holy. Now he's saying that, keep in mind, to a group of really immature, really messed up people. How in the world could he call them holy? How in the world could he tell them that they have been sanctified? Well, now, if you know a little bit of theological vocabulary, you, you may have heard the word positional sanctification. They're, they're sanctified in that kind of formal sense. Well, that does not capture what's going on here. To really get a sense of, of what Paul is saying, and, and he makes that kind of statement in many of his letters, we have to go back all the way into the Old Testament to look at the roots of this concept of holiness. And, and it all starts with the Old Testament's affirmation that God is the Holy One. Because holy means to be other, to be unique, to be apart, and to set apart. And God is the Holy One. And because God is the Holy One, we're called to be holy. But what does that mean? Does that mean to be really, really good? Well, it's got implications for that, but that's not fundamentally what it means to be holy. Just to be really, really good. What it means, we start to see in little vignettes like Exodus chapter 3. Many of you know this story. This is where Moses is on a stroll through the, through the desert, and he happens to catch out of the corner of his eye a bush in the middle of nowhere that's on fire. And the bush just keeps burning and keeps burning and does not burn up. And he goes over to it and then he hears a voice from the bush, the voice of God as it turns out, calling to him. And as he approaches the bush, God says to him from the bush, Moses, take off your shoes. Do you, you know this story? Take off your shoes because the ground we're standing is holy ground. Now stop and think about that just for a moment. The ground where you're standing is holy ground? I mean, he's standing on a patch of dirt. How, how, how does that patch of dirt he's standing on differ from the dirt 10 feet over there? Did that dirt change its chemical properties? No, I think not. Dirt's dirt. Any way you analyze it. But what made that dirt holy was that it was in the presence of God. That's where our concept of holiness has to start. And we see this, and, and we will kind of trace this in, in a few different incidents throughout different parts of Scripture. That to be holy is to be in the presence of God. To be holy is to be prepared to be in the presence of God. 
if we run, uh, run the tape forward just a little bit to Exodus chapter 19, we see by this point that Moses is leading this whole nation of Israel. And God wants to meet with the nation of Israel. In Exodus 19, God tells Moses to consecrate or make holy the whole nation because the next morning they're going to come to the foot of Mount Sinai to meet with God. And God says, you consecrate them, which involved kind of a, a, a ritual cleansing of their sin, a preparation for them to meet the Lord. God says, consecrate them, Moses, because if you don't, when they come to meet with me, they might die. Now, that sounds very intimidating, doesn't it? But the, the, the message in all of that is that God wanted to meet with the people. God had wanted them to be able to come close God made provision for them to be able to come into God's presence. And so God had selected these people. God had elected them. God had chosen them. God had set them apart. God had provided for their cleansing so that they could come into God's presence and so that they could play the unique role that God had for them in the world, which was to show God's glory to the world. And they were a holy people. They were a holy people, not because they were a good people, because they were not. They were a holy people, not because they were a mature people, because they were not. They were a holy people, not because they had it all together, or they were better than other people, because they were none of that. They were holy because God had set them apart. And God had forgiven their sins. And God had become present to them. And God had... had have committed God's own self to them to be with them. That's what made them holy. And we find that same set of characteristics time and time again through the Old Testament where God's name represents God's presence, where people are called by God's name, they're called to be in God's presence. And we find this um, in the Old Testament where even... Even inanimate objects, tactile objects, were consecrated. They were made holy so that they could be in the presence of God. Exodus 28 and 29, we see a list of, of things, inanimate objects, that had to be made holy or consecrated, set apart, so they could be in God's presence. The altar, the bread, the priest's garments, because the priest was going to be in the inner part of the tabernacle, where the presence of God dwelt most intimately. Now, the funny thing about, it's not funny, the interesting thing about, about being in God's presence in those days was that only the high priest got to go into the immediate presence of God. It's the high priest and the priest's garments and the, the stuff, the utensils, everything else that was going to be in the immediate presence of God that had to be consecrated or made holy. But to be, and, and the nation was holy, but only kind of from, from a distance, not, not as immediately proximate to the presence of God. That takes us into the New Testament. And that's where Paul, as one, picks up on that concept and makes the most staggering statement you could ever imagine about this. He makes it actually in that same letter we, we looked at, 1 Corinthians. But if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes a comment there that for many of you will be familiar, but 
to those people, this may have been one of the most shocking and staggering things they had ever considered. Paul says to this Corinthian church, this group of immature, messed up people, he says to them in chapter 3, do you not know that you, that is you collectively, you as a church, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. Do you see the imagery he's drawing upon? The temple, the tabernacle from the Old Testament, where God dwelt, where God met with people in the most intimate way, but only one person, and only once a year. And now, because of Jesus Christ, now that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all the church, now, every single one of you, if you have committed yourself in faith to Jesus Christ, You live in the presence of God with the same intimacy that the high priest did in the Old Testament. Every one of you have that type of proximity to the very presence of the Holy One, the living God. I'm going to paraphrase Paul. Do you not know who you are? You are a holy people. Because the presence of the living God has set up shop right in the middle of you. That's now who you are. And Paul uses that then to go on and sometimes challenge them, chastise them, correct them, instruct them, tell them to live into that. But he says, this is who you are. You are the holy people of God. Now, what does all this mean for us? If, if holiness, if being sanctified is something that God has already done for us through Jesus Christ by cleansing us from our sins, cleansing us or removing everything that stands between us and God, forgiving that by pouring out His Spirit on us, by choosing to, to literally live among us in a, in a very particular way, particularly when we gather together? If that's all been done, and we, I mean, I don't know most of you real well, but I'm just going to assume that, like me, you're kind of a mixed bag, even on good days. We've got a lot of room to grow, a lot of stuff that needs fixed. A lot of changes that need to happen. Sometimes that growth is so slow if it feels like it's happening at all. Anybody with me in that? And yet, we're holy. What does all that mean for us? Well, it means several things that are, I think, fairly practical. To be holy is not something that is out in front of us that we're always always groping for but never reaching to be holy is to have god committed god's own presence to us and for us to commit ourselves to god to be holy means that god is committed to always go with us to be present to us and be present with us even when 
the path of obedience, the path of discipleship, involves great risks and great cost and scares us to death and leaves us with stretch marks. God goes with us. To be holy means um, that we've been given a unique purpose by God. As ordinary as I suppose most of us are, we've been set apart. We've been given a very unique and a very specific purpose that little old us, we can display the glory of the living God in the world in which we've been placed. When I was a kid, there was a cartoon, one of my favorite Saturday morning cartoons was Underdog. Did any of you old duffers remember Underdog? Not bird nor plane. You remember the, the line? Not bird, not bird nor plane nor even frog. It's just little old me, Underdog. If you didn't see Underdog, you don't know what, that's not funny to you. But, but just, just plain old Underdog, ordinary us. We have been made holy by being given the purpose of reflecting the glory of the living God to the people in the world where God has placed us. And God is with us. To be holy means that. To be holy means that even the ordinary can become an occasion for meeting with God. Even the ordinary. Um, there's a, an interesting example of this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul makes what seems to be maybe another throwaway comment. It's worth paying attention to because in 1 Timothy 4, 5, Paul talks about just the ordinary food and drink that we enjoy every day. And he says that your food and drink become holy by the Word of God and by prayer. What he seems to mean there is that when, when we recognize that God gives us these as gifts, and when we give thanks to God for them, even ordinary food and drink becomes an occasion for us to interact with and to enjoy the goodness and the blessing of the living God. So your lunch today, whether you like it or whether you don't, whether it's good or whether it's mediocre, whatever you're going to have lunch for lunch today, when you stop to give thanks to God for that, that run-of-the-mill, ordinary, daily activity of food and drink becomes holy. doesn't change its composition, doesn't make it taste any better, but it becomes an occasion for meeting with God. That's what holiness does. It changes everything. Now, holiness does not automatically make us mature. Holiness does not automatically remove all, all the quirks from our personalities. Holiness does not automatically remove the struggles from our lives. But holiness allows us to be transformed because now the Spirit of God is with us. Holiness is not maturity, but holiness demands maturity. We can become mature. We can be transformed because we have been made holy. I find that, I don't know about you, but I find that deeply encouraging. Because for many years, for all too many years, whenever anybody broached the subject of holiness, something in my heart just sank. 
Because I thought, here we go again. I will never measure up. But to realize that holiness has been done for us. And it doesn't mean that I'm all fixed now, but it does mean that God has so committed himself to us and so made provision for us to live in God's presence that now everything changes. The world is large and spacious, not small and constricted. The world is full of possibilities and hope, not hopelessness, because God is with us. Now, even those areas of my life that are relentless struggles where I feel to be making, feel like I'm making so little, if any, progress, I know that God is still working in me somehow, even if I don't have a metric to track it. Can be transformed. Life can be different because I've been made holy, because you have been made holy. Everything's different because of that. Now, frankly, Eric Little is still a role model for me. I still want to be like the guy. He's still worth imitating, as are many others whose maturity may be out ahead of our own in some way. But it's not an intimidating model anymore. It's a hopeful model. I don't want to be like Eric Little so that I can be a holy person. I want to be like Eric Little because I am a holy person. Not, not because I've got anything particular together, but because God is with me. Because I live in the presence of God. And in that sense, whether it's a messed up church and a divided church, or a united church and a, and a happy church, we, you, are the temple of the living God. And you're a holy people. And now Paul and the other New Testament writers would tell us, as a holy people, now live like it. <laughs> now lean into that. Now get after it. Be who you are. Because that is who you are. Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, indescribably grateful for this gift that you would set your eye on us that you would have special purposes for us that you out of your own love and initiative would make provision for the forgiveness of our sins that you would want to have communion with us that you would want us to be in your presence we're thankful for that, and, and because of that, we, we ask that you would give us, Lord, the vision, the clear vision to see where you're calling us when the way forward seems very blocked or very dark. We pray that having made us holy people, being present with us, you would give us hope on those days when... There seems to be none when we seem to have no options and no clue. And we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make us, as your holy people, 
people who, whose character and whose lives and whose unity and whose love does reflect your character. Help us to these ends, Lord, to be who we are. Be who you've made us to be for your glory, for your name's sake in the world, and for the good of the world through those like us you have commissioned. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Don. I appreciate that. Uh, Great. My favorite image from that long list of items that he mentioned from the Old Testament is the holy shovel. That's my favorite one. It's like it's just for taking ashes out, but this is a holy one. That's good. It's a good reminder today. Thanks for contributing to this ongoing discussion that we've been having. Ushers, if you would come, please. This is a way for you, actually, to devote something. It's a specific act right now where you get to specifically devote plain old money to God and to the use for the kingdom. And this church is always so amazingly generous, so thank you. And then, of course, we'll... uh, continue the communion idea as we celebrate it together in a few moments.